A man by the name of <clears throat> Gregory Elder writes, Growing up on the Atlantic coast, I spent long hours working on intricate sandcastles. Whole cities would appear beneath my hands. One year, for several days in a row, I was accosted by bullies who smashed my creations. Finally, I tried an experiment. I placed cinder blocks rocks and chunks of concrete in the base of my castles then I built the sand kingdoms on top of the rocks and when the local tufts appeared and I disappeared their bare feet suddenly met their match many people see the church in grave peril from a variety of dangers secularism politics heresies or plain old sin. They forget that the church is built upon a rock over which the gates of hell itself shall not prevail. That last sentence tells me that the church is in conflict with an enemy who seeks to destroy its existence. But the church is built on a foundation that cannot be moved and cannot be destroyed. Last week, if you recall in our going through the study of the book of Esther, last week, if you recall, Mordecai had asked Esther to go before the king and to make supplication to him and to plead before him on behalf of her people. On her people. For he believed that she, as queen, was the only one who could help save her people from the death sentence that had been placed upon them. Queen Esther then called for a three-day fast for the Jewish people living in Susa in preparation before going to see the king, which could cost her her life. Now that the three-day fast is over, Queen Esther is going to execute a plan of intercession. The strategy she employs here will eventually lead her to successfully save her people. Her strategy is important for us as the church because as we saw last week, the church is the bride of Christ, thus making the church a queen. Therefore, the plan that the Queen Esther employs in saving her people in her day becomes a template or a model for the church as queen to employ to save people in her day, in our day. The church as queen. And she must do, the, she must do so because she's living in a time of conflict on which there is a death sentence placed upon her people. So, since that is the case, what must the church do as queen to successfully save people from the sentence of death that is placed upon them? And let us remind, I want to remind you that humanity has a death sentence placed on them. All of humanity has a death sentence placed on them. The only people who do not have a death sentence placed on them are those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ by means of faith. That's the only reason why 
Jesus is a savior for a reason. He came to save people who are going to be doomed to destruction. And there are many people outside these walls who do not know, do not understand, do not believe that they are under a death sentence. So with that in mind, how can therefore the church be successful in saving people from the sentence of death that is placed upon them? If the church as queen wants to be successful in saving people from the sentence of death that is placed upon them, the church must first make sure that she is wearing the proper clothing. This is the most important point of the first three points concerning Esther. If the church wants to be successful in saving people from the sentence of death that is placed upon them, the church must first make sure that she is wearing the proper clothing. Read the screen, verses 1 and 2. This is what Esther does. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the manor in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. And so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court in her royal robes that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. So what's going on? She knows that she cannot go legally before the king without being announced. She knows that she's taking a big risk. She's risking her life. So what she's going to do to gain favor from the king is put on her royal robes. Why does she do that? She wants to make herself more appealing to the king, more beautiful. To wear these royal robes as queen would make her more beautiful in the eyes of the king. And so when the king sees her come unannounced, he sees her in those beautiful royal robes, and he is, uh, he is impressed with what he sees. If she were to go to him just wearing drabby old clothes, I wonder what the king's response was going to be, particularly since he hadn't seen her in 30 days. But she comes with his royal robes on, he sees how beautiful she is, and immediately the king sitting on his throne looks at her, and looks favorably upon her because of her clothes. And as a result, he extends the golden scepter as an act of grace and favor towards her. And she responds by accepting that grace, that accepting that favor that the king is bestowing upon her by touching the top of the scepter. That's what's going on. Now, we are the bride of Christ. And we have a responsibility to go before the throne. We all have friends and family members, brothers and sisters, mothers or fathers, cousins, uncles, aunts, friends, co-workers who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is our duty as the church to intercede for them. But when we do so and we go to God in prayer... Are we mindful of how we are clothed? What do we have on when we go before the Lord in prayer? How does he see you and me when we approach his holy throne and make a request before him? 
it is imperative that brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ are properly dressed in order to gain the favor of Almighty God. How do we do that? By putting on robes. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10. He says, For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. How do we get robes of righteousness? How do we clothe ourselves with robes of righteousness? The only way you can get clothed with robes of righteousness is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ that he is God Almighty and accepting the provision of God the Father for you through him by faith. You put on Jesus Christ like clothing. Listen to what it says, Paul, in Romans chapter 13, verses 11 and 14. Listen to what Paul says. And do this, church of Rome, do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. We put on Jesus Christ when we believe in Jesus Christ and the gospel message that you need to believe in him in order to be saved, you are in essence putting him on you. And when God the Father sees you, he doesn't see you anymore. He sees the robe of righteousness that is only provided in the person of Jesus Christ. The result of having Christ on you, then God will pour his grace upon you. Accept the grace through the person of Jesus Christ. The response should be what Esther did. Touch the scepter. Accept the grace. Believe it. Appropriate it in your life. And when you do, God will look favorably upon you as an individual. That's how you get favor. By putting on Jesus Christ first and foremost. Now once you have him on you, it's not enough. If you are clothed with Christ... There should be a certain character and a certain holiness of life that should reflect the fact that we are clothed with Christ. Listen to what Ephesians 4.24 says. And that you, Paul says, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. Now, if we are righteous, if we believe in Jesus that we must have a life that represents and reflects the life of Jesus himself. And too many believers today may say that they're believers, believe that Jesus died for them, but their life is not compatible and consistent with the Christian life. And therefore, when God sees them and they go before the throne to pray for a lost brother or sister, God is not going to respond because they're inappropriately dressed. And there are too many Christians today living in our society that are indecently exposed. If we want God to respond to us when we go before his holy throne, we must make sure that we are properly dressed. And that is exactly what Esther does as queen. And that is exactly what the church must do today as well. How are you dressed? 
The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And there is a need this morning. There has been a need for a while, and there will continue to be a need. And I wonder if the author of Hebrews has Esther in mind when he writes, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, because that is exactly how she does it. But we do so with proper attire. Through faith in Jesus and a holy, righteous life that is consistent with him. That is so important today. If we want to be intercessors like Esther is, it is vitally important that we are aware of how we are dressed. Number one. Number two. If the church as queen wants to be successful in saving people from the sentence of death that is placed upon them, the church must be willing to extend an invitation to a banquet that has been previously prepared. Listen to what it says in verses 3 through 5. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, up to half the kingdom. Now let me stop right there. He's not, the king is not offering Esther half of his kingdom. This is simply a common expression to show the generosity of the king. He's a gracious, generous king. And this was a way to express it. Okay? Continue in verse 4. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet and Esther, that Esther had prepared. See what Esther did? She is inviting the king and Haman to a banquet that she has previously prepared. Now, if we, like Esther, want to be successful in bringing people who have a death sentence on them, save them, then we have to extend an invitation to them. That's it. That's what she was willing to do. And did you know that the coming of the kingdom of God is often depicted as a banquet? As a feast? Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 8 verse 11. Jesus says, And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The term sit down here is a word that means to recline as in the context of a banquet. Jesus also gives a parable in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14, and the parable is about the parable of a wedding feast. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out the servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted calf are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. And finally, we see in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The kingdom of God that is coming is depicted as a banquet, as a feast that is coming. And it's up for the church to invite those around her to come to the wedding. And watch what's this. Watch, this is so interesting. Who does she invite? Haman. Of all people, you're going to invite Haman to a banquet? Why would she do that? She's very shrewd. The king 
always uh, would get advice from those who were closest to him. In the book of Esther, whenever you see the king make a decree, he's always being manipulated either by Memekin or he's being, uh, uh, he's being manipulated by Haman. She knows that. The last thing she wants to do is have, uh, the last thing she wants to do is have Haman have private time with the king. Hey, you know, why did, your, why did your wife come to see you? Why was she willing to risk her life to go make a request? What was that request? She didn't want that, she didn't want to give him the opportunity, so she made sure that they were both always together in her presence. Very shrewd. But the fact is, she was willing to extend an invitation to her enemy. The church cannot play favorites with the invitation that it offers to those around us. The invitation is universal to everybody, even those who hate the church and do not believe our Lord Jesus Christ. The invitation should be given no matter what. If the church, you and I are going to be successful, you don't have to be articulate in sharing the gospel. You can live it. Preach the gospel and you use words when necessary, right? Make an invitation. Invite them to church. Invite them to listen to the message on the radio. Let God take care of the rest. We offer and extend the invitation. If we want to be successful in, in saving people with a death sentence on them, make an invitation. Invite them to come. That's it. God will do the rest. Thirdly, if the church as queen wants to be successful in saving people from the sentence of death that is placed upon them, the church must demonstrate patience and trust in God's timing. The church must be patient and wait upon God's timing. Verses 6 through 8. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king have said. Why does she do that? Just tell him the reason why you have come. But she doesn't do that. And I say, why? She's very wise. She knows, something intuitively in her says it's not time yet. It's not time yet. You know what she's doing? She's giving God time to work in the king's life. Because you know what happens later on in chapter 6? The king can't sleep. He can't sleep at night. He's probably thinking, why is my queen willing to risk her life to come see me and she's not telling me, what is this request? I can't, and he couldn't sleep. And you know what happened that night? He ends up reading in, in, in one of the chronicles in the books. He ends up finding out that Mordecai was the one who discovered a plot to save his life. And it changes the whole course of events. That would have never happened had she just made the invitation and then and, and acted on, and, and acted on it right away. She waited. She, she was intuitive. And she waited and she trusted God in the process. She made the invitation and was patient for God to work. And we must do the same. Listen to what it says in James 5, 7 to 8. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The hardest thing for us to do 
when we have unsaved loved ones who are, we don't see the fruit of the gospel in their life, we become impatient and anxious. It's true. Because like Esther, there's only a limited amount of time before the decree is executed. And so we get uptight and anxious and we cry out to God and say, Lord, how long are you going to wait and do something in my relatives or loved one's life? And we can get impatient. She was very patient. Another passage in Luke 8.15. This, this is the parable of the sower and the seed where Jesus talks about how he, the, the, the word of God is like a man who goes out in the fields and he sows all and scatters all these seed and all the various types of soils. And he comes to the last type of soil where the, the seed falls on good ground. And Jesus says this, but the ones that fell on good ground are those having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. It takes time for God to work in the person's life. As it takes time after we sow the seed in the fields, God is the only one who makes it grow, and we have to be patient for it to grow. The same is true with how he works in the hearts of men and women. It takes time, and so we need to be patient. If we have the proper clothes on, and we make an invitation to a, bank, a banquet that has already been prepared by a heavenly father, and we, when we, we practice patience, we will increase the likelihood of being successful as a church, as a mediator, as an intercessor, intervening on behalf of those who don't know the Lord. That's the plan of the church. And in contradiction to this, the rest of the chapter is about Haman's relationship with Mordecai. And this is a plot, conflict, Watch what happens. We'll run through this very quickly. What does the author want me to know now about Haman's deceptive plot? The author has very skillfully placed the story of Esther with the king and the story of Haman with Mordecai back to back to see the contrast. One's, one is working to save people. The other is seeking to destroy. What does the author want me to know about Haman's deceptive plot? Haman's deceptive plot to destroy Mordecai involved hiding his true feelings and motives from the public. Verses 9 and 10. So Haman went out that day joyful after the feast. He went out that day with joyful and a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Here he is at this party, Haman is. He's having a great old time. He's being honored and respected, which is what he wants more than anything else. And then on the way home from the party, what does he see? This Mordecai, Mordecai character. And Mordecai will not give him the respect, will not bow down to him. He doesn't fear uh, Haman. And this, this, makes, uh, this really gets underneath the skin of Haman. But you know what? He doesn't want anyone to know about it. He doesn't want... Publicly, he doesn't want to show that this man, Mordecai, has gotten underneath my skin because that's beneath my dignity as one of the most powerful people in the Persian Empire. I can't let anyone know that this man, Mordecai, is getting underneath my skin. That makes me look small. So what does he do? He's going to wait till he goes home. Then he's going to call his wife and his best friends, and then he's going to let it all out in private. That's what he's going to do. That's how the enemy works. He worked that way with the religious leaders in Jesus' day. 
Listen to what it says in Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4. Then the leading priests and the older Jewish leaders had a meeting at the palace where the high priest lived. The high priest's name was Caiaphas. In the meeting, they tried to find a way to arrest and kill Jesus without anyone knowing what they were doing. See the parallels relationship between Haman and Mordecai with Satan and Jesus. Secondly, Haman's deceptive plot to destroy Mordecai was based on his pride and his hatred of the man. Verses 11 to 13. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. All the privilege and all the power and all the prestige that he has, as long as he sees Mordecai standing at the gate, he can't handle it. This man, Mordecai, makes his stomach turn. And when we think of the enemy of our souls, he looks at Jesus the exact same way. He wanted Jesus to bow to him when he came on the earth. Bow before me and I'll give you all these riches. And Jesus says, no. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And what did Satan do? He left. Why? Because he couldn't do nothing. So what has Satan done? Turns his wrath on humanity because humanity is the object of God's desire. I'll get to him through people. And we're seeing it all over our nation now. Haman's deceptive plot to destroy Mordecai, thirdly, included the public humiliation of Mordecai. Verse 14, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let gallows be made, 50 cubits high, literally 75, 80 feet high. And in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and so that he had the gallows made. He, you know, when the wife and his friends heard Haman speak of Mordecai, they understood that the death of Mordecai was not enough to satisfy him. Let's humiliate him in the process. So make gallows an instrument that is raised 75, 80 feet high so that he could be hanged there publicly for all to see as a warning that if anyone acts like Mordecai, that they're going to get the same treatment. And of course, the parallel with our Savior is clear. For the enemy hates Jesus. He's not satisfied with just killing him. He wants to humiliate him. So let's put him on a cross to publicly humiliate him in front of everybody in Palestine to say, anybody wants to be like him, this is what's going to happen to you. Little does Haman know that the instrument that he has made for the death of Mordecai would be the means by which his own demise would come. And the same is true at the cross. It was the cross that the enemy had, instrument, had, had implemented and used to put to death the Savior of the world, not realizing in the process he is undoing himself. Colossians 2, 13, 15, and you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you in all of your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, referring to the law, and he has taken it out of the way 
Having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made his public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. He meant to humiliate Jesus on the cross and did so, and by doing so, humiliates himself and renders the enemy's greatest tool on humanity, death, no longer operative, no longer effective. The struggle between church and the enemy. The church has a responsibility to have proper clothing before the king, to extend an invitation to all, and to be patient as God works, understanding that the enemy of our souls has already been defeated because our intercession was based on his intercession on our behalf. He is the foundation. And like the man who was kicking the foundation with the sand, that's exactly what the enemy of our souls has done. He's kicking a foundation on which we stand that cannot be, cannot be moved. And we as the church are victorious. And we need, as the church need to understand that and live in such a way that it is true. In the Greek Orthodox tradition, the day after Easter was devoted to telling jokes. They felt that they were initiating the cosmic joke that God pulled on Satan in the resurrection. Satan thought he had won and was a smug in his victory, smiling to himself, having the last word, or so he thought. Then God raised Jesus from the dead and life and salvation became the last words. Life and salvation are gonna be the one as standing victorious. May we as the church be intercessors of that life by wearing the robes, the royal robes that God has given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. May we be successful in extending an invitation even to those that we may not have an inclination towards. And may we be patient in the process knowing that victory is ours in Jesus Christ in the midst of the conflict that we witness and that we see and experience every day. Victory is ours, O church. Keep that in mind and let us live in such a way that that is a reality. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We are your church. We are your beautiful bride. And we thank you for the clothing that you have given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we want to be living holy and righteous lives before you so that we can be intercessors that you've called us to be as your bride on behalf of a world that is falling apart all around us. Have grace upon us, Lord. Look favorably, favorably upon us so that you can do your work through us. That's why we're here. That's why we're remaining here. May you accomplish your great work in us. Help us to be vessels that you can use for your glory and for your honor. Give us courage and boldness, just like Esther, so that we can accomplish your work in this world. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.